You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organisation pursuing real learning, original scholarship and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me, as always, is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for uh, serving as the host. Today, we're going to be discussing friendship. We're going to talk about how the classical world uh, viewed friendship and what the Christian world uh, brought to it and what we see today uh, both the positive and negative aspects of, of what the modern world has taken from our patrimony of classical and Christian influences. Uh, let's start, obviously, at the beginning, uh, Dr. Fleming, with, with Homer. We've done several podcasts on him at this point. Is there really more that we can say? I remember particularly you recapitulating that episode on the battlefield between the two host guest friends, uh, people who had, whose families had history together, there might be people thinking, all right, Dr. Fleming's going to take us into the tall grass with, with his uh, you know, classical obsession. Is there something that we can give to, to readers who maybe aren't as obsessed with the classics as, as you are? Yes, well, first of all, I strongly object to uh, the word obsessed. It's, uh, I have a strong interest in the in the tradition which has defined who we are for 3,000 years. So um, uh, I'd, I'd hardly characterize that as an obsession. There is uh, there's really an enormous amount in Homer, both in the sense that uh, Homer is the Iliad and the Odyssey are our first works of imaginative literature we have in the West, and they're still the best. So it, it is a little depressing to understand that semi-literate uh, uh, wild men <laughs> in, uh, in archaic Greece ended up producing a literature which has never been surpassed and probably never even equaled. You know, Thomas Jefferson said late in life, <clears throat> you know, he, had, he was an incredible reader and he had read all modern literature, he'd read uh, the, the ancients, and he said, you know, in the end, it really come, there's, only, uh, there's really only Virgil and Homer and as I get older, I'm beginning to wonder if it, there isn't just Homer. So if it's, if it's good enough for Jefferson, it, it should be good enough for us. Secondly, because of this enormous <clears throat> influence that uh, Homer has had on all subsequent literature, even on people who didn't read it, because his influence through Virgil, for example, his influence on all, all Roman poetry, the, the stories he tells – uh, all of this makes it a convenient kind of parallel universe, much like the Old Testament. My wife and I are reading uh, the Old Testament from the beginning uh, in English, in the so-called authorized version, <clears throat> which is much better than any of the in a, much better literature than any of the Catholic versions. By the way, the, the Douay Reims is one of the worst written books I think I've ever ever tried to get through. But um, I'm, cover I'm covering the ears of all traditional Catholics, as you say that, Doctor Fleming. We'll, we'll keep it's, going. It's on. It's on grammatical. They can't even use because they were apparently they were living so long in France, they couldn't even properly distinguish between shall and will. And it's uh, it's full of a weird. Uh, uh, expressions, which because it didn't exercise the influence that the authorized version did, these on English, 
these strange expressions uh, no, uh, lead us astray constantly. And I'll, I'll, priests have to, over and over, have to explain the bizarre language, which is much more strange than, uh, which is no fault of the, the Douay Reims. It's just that the language has shifted and this hasn't had an influence. I think, but anyway. I, I think you may be onto something that living in France for too long as an English speaker can have some effects on you, Dr. Fleming. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I know that certain ways I speak are based, A, on the strong influence that uh, Italian and French have had on, uh, on my usage. And second of all, I've developed a, almost a Slavic understanding of verbal aspect, which then troubles me when I'm speaking English, which doesn't make correct distinctions. So this, yeah, the, the, language, the languages we grow up speaking are the languages that sort of help to define our character. Hmm. But Homer, Homer is the Old Testament of the Greek world, and that is, it's it's an ancient world for them. For 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 uh, Socrates, the Homeric world was very different from his own. But it's a world that you can you can look at and test out your own ideas. So it's a secular Bible, and it has lots of lessons for everybody if you're willing to read Homer not as a reflection of our own time, but to try to read our own time, try to understand it by using a Homeric mirror. In many ways, that world is very alien, but the fact that it has appealed over and over, generation after generation, to, uh, to Romans and to the French, to the Germans, to the English, to Americans— reveals that I think there's some uh, some bit of the Homeric man that sort of like uh, like the old Adam that's lurking in all of us. Now, to I want to before going on with Homeric ethics, since the, the subject is friendship, I want to quote from a uh, a rather modern writer uh, about this because. We don't think about friendship today. Friendship is sort of how we feel about people. And it's everybody's our friend. We're all the hair with many friends. I have, I have children who talk about their dozens and dozens and dozens of friends. And I always warn them, if you make two or three friends in a lifetime, you've really accomplished something. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, <clears throat> pays a tribute to the, uh, which sounds almost like it's, it, it's Plutarch, to the power and nobility of friendship. Lewis says, friendship is unnecessary. It's like philosophy, like art. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. That is, it's a reason to live, to have friends. And this is as true is as it is beautiful. The trouble is, it's so it's so uh, beautiful and pie in the sky. It's like reading French philosophers on friendship. You end up thinking that well, that's something I can never achieve. Read read Montaigne on friendship, and it turns out friendship was the most important thing in his life. But he only had one friend. Hmm. So, so let's go on to Homer. Um, we have discussed uh, when we talked about the Odyssey and the Iliad is uh, we've talked about different aspects of Homeric ethics <clears throat> and how uh, Homeric man anticipates sometimes crudely and sometimes very crudely Christian moral views. And also we've talked about the difference in. But um, I'm not I don't want to so much go into that question today, because I want to do a series of discussions on friendship, friendship as the basis of the human moral life 
in all societies, especially in Western society, and as the basis of the Christian community. And uh, I think you could read 100,000 books on the on the morality of the New Testament, and you will not find this discussion. And in fact, you'll find the opposite. You'll find people say, well, friendship isn't important. What's important is a, what they always call in the sermons, agape love, you know, the, the Christian selfless love. And by the end of this, I hope to show that, that and I'm anticipating by several episodes, hope to show that what Christians regarded each other in the early church, that is the church of Christ and his apostles, they called each other friends and brothers because this is what they aspired to, which was uh, the highest possible level of friendship. So that's what we want to talk about a little bit today, both what a friend, a philos in Greek, and friendship, philia, what these and we get those, of course, in uh, what they what they mean both uh, to the ancients and what they mean particularly to Homer uh, in uh, as a as a as a source for our discussion. Now, the we're used to the root because we have Philadelphia, the city of brotherly philia, brotherly love. So we and we know what a what a what a philatelist is, you know, he's somebody who likes stamps. We know so we know that that root phil means or philosophy, meaning somebody who it, it makes makes wisdom his friend. So we're we're used to the word. So, but instead, let's let's just talk about for a minute. What about what is what is friendship to the ancients? Hmm. Are you asking within within the construct of Homer, Dr. Fleming? No, to us. Let's start with us. What is what is when we talk about friendship? What do we mean? Oh, it's so watered down for for us. I mean, uh, moderns we we think about uh, people we're connected to on Facebook, or maybe someone we had a class with in college, yeah. or or someone that we we knew in the neighborhood. But uh, it doesn't begin to necessarily yeah. approach the the depth that that you're you're discussing. Yeah. It's mostly, um, I would say, a combination of, of a shared experience, but of course that doesn't count on Facebook. Shared experience and, you know, fond feelings, common interest. But in Greek, the word um, mean, it, it really seems to mean what belongs to one, one's own. Throughout Homer, he'll often, my, they'll translate it as dear, like my dear body, my dear life. And, but, but what they mean, but really what Homer means is my own body. So that which is quintessentially belongs to you. So, uh, so what, is, what is friend is what, what is yours. Like, and this means that your closest friends, therefore, from the Greek point of view, are your close kins, kinsmen, your father, your mother, your brother and sister, your cousins, these are all friends. And then, and then people that are allied to you and will uh, help you. Again, to quote uh, C.S. Lewis, in Homer, Lewis has said, um, philia, friendship, is, quote, that inalterable relationship, far deeper than fondness and compatible with all changes of mood, which unites a normal man to his wife, his home, or his own body. The tie of mutual belonging, 
which is there even when he dislikes them. So it's in, in fact not you may you may really be angry or disgusted with your wife or mother or child or cousin or good friend, but that doesn't alter the fact that you have this relationship to them. And the fact that we don't have this concept much in English anymore, it's there in Shakespeare's time, but not really uh, in our own time, is, is I would suggest not just a great personal and emotional and social loss, but it's a great moral loss because we don't have a category of beings that to whom we owe special obligations, that we have to do certain things for. So now on, on to uh, Homer, and, and the, the, uh, the question is, how, how significant really, we're going to ask today, uh, is this concept of friendship here in the Iliad and the Odyssey, particularly in the Iliad, because we've talked a little bit about the Odyssey in the past. The, uh, there, are, there are friends in uh, the Iliad. Uh, in fact, the Iliad has one of the most famous pairs of friends in world literature, namely Achilles and Patroclus. <clears throat> They're closer uh, than most brothers would be in our world. They're so close that Greeks a few hundred years later thought their passion might be homoerotic. But uh, this is, as I hope we can maybe talk a little bit about this at the end of our podcast, <clears throat> uh, Man love for man is not something really which seems to be conceivable in Homer. So you could take that right off the table from the beginning. But the two are so close. They're so closely identified that it's, it is not insignificant that when Patroclus dies fighting for the, for the Greek cause when his great friend Achilles won't go into the battle, he's wearing Achilles armor. And fulfilling sort of the ancient definition, both in Greek and Latin, amicus alter ipse, as the Romans said, the friend is the other self. So, the, you know, the friend is somebody that we can treat as if, he, as if he were ourself. And by the way, anticipating the, that uh, to, to love thy neighbor as, thy, as you would love yourself. This is, this is a, uh, the Greeks didn't think you should treat everybody that way. By the way, I would argue very strongly, neither did Jesus Christ think we had to treat everybody uh, uh, as, uh, as our neighbor. So what, what is a friend? What is a friend? Well, I the, just, could, I, could yeah, I just stop sure. you there, Dr. Flanagan? Yeah. Because when you mention Jesus and friendship, I think particularly about two examples, uh, John. So yes. we, we see the disciple whom he loved. We see yes. this phrasing in both the Greek and the Latin, obviously. And then uh, the, the, the family friendship with Lazarus and his sisters that you could see our Lord had a particular affinity, right? The fact that it's a, it's a place in Scripture where our Lord cries, where, yes. where he weeps, that there is something more here. And, and, and that might, again, be challenging for Christians because, again, we're, we're conceiving of our God and his creation of all of us. But yet, within within his this his human life, that he still had particular friends. Yeah, it's, that's an extremely important point, Stephen. Because to ignore that point, 
uh, leads us into all sorts of trouble. You know, we have this, there's a typical sort of American view, you know, if you, you want to know whether to cheat on your taxes, cheat on your wife, or squeal on a friend, you say, well, what would Jesus do? Well, the first of all, you know, Jesus is God after all, you know, <laughs> so we can't all, like, for example, gee, we've run out of food at the party. What would Jesus do? Well, he <laughs> <laughs> he'd make some he'd make some water into wine, I suppose. Yes, he'd make the water into wine, and he'd turn a couple of Ritz crackers into into a into a sumptuous banquet. But so we can't do a lot of the things, and so what we see, but but in insofar as Jesus is treated as human and having human attributes, you know, he for example, he knows that he has gone beyond early on in life he knows that he has gone beyond his parents understanding you know when they come to see him and he's teaching in in the in the synagogue and they they don't know what he's doing and uh and he but it's he went off and was and subjected himself to them why because they're wiser than he is no even at the age of nine or ten his wisdom now surpasses theirs so why does he subject them to it subject yourself to them because there's parents and because this is what all human beings are supposed to do and they are supposed to be and you know one of his last thoughts is to to entrust his mother to his book to the disciple that he loves and that she will he'll now be the son and she'll be the mother so among the last thoughts uh, our Lord has on earth is to take care of his parent and, and why is this important it's important because the human Jesus is setting us the example of how to live. So yeah, so then the human Jesus weeps over over his friend Lazarus uh, because but because he's dead, and uh, there are, and, and so it is. But we, it, it is important to understand that we, we we although we cannot walk on water probably and we cannot turn water into wine, uh, much less walk on it simultaneously. We have to, uh, but we are to emulate the human Jesus. So sorry to interrupt, Dr. Fleming. We'll, we'll no, get, not at all. We'll get back to the Greeks. And, and, and again, uh, as, you, as you say, uh, our modern culture is so literally perverted that we can't uh, represent Achilles and Patroclus in film without implying this, this sort of seedy relationship because we don't have the subtlety to... We, we, we don't have healthy male relationships anymore. You yeah. don't have healthy male friendships anymore. There's always got to be this cloud of suspicion. Even, you know, even so recently as the Victorian era, which <clears throat> I was born a little bit after, but uh, you know, people read uh, Tennyson's, what he thought of as his masterpiece, uh, uh, In Memoriam, which is a long philosophical poem to commemorate a dead friend. Well, he couldn't be this emotional and this attached to this person if it wasn't a homosexual relationship, is the burden of an enormous number of books and studies of Tennyson. Now, the fact that that he that he arranged that this friend marry his sister, you know, and it, and and it, it, the whole thing is just ridiculous. We know that Tennyson was a loved woman. He was very fond of women that, you know, he had a ha happy marriage, everything else. But no, no. The only way we can understand his relationship with with his friend Hallam, if, if it's if it's powerful, it must be dirty. So you're, 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 you're right. In, um, 
there are two there are two or three different aspects of friendship that we could consider in English and they're and and they're clearly different in Greek. And one one really important difference is uh, people who are called friends and people who are called comrades. A friend is somebody if the if the primary relationship of friendship is like you, with your brother, your sister, your cousins, with with your kinfolk. In other words, these are relationships you have inherited. They are built based on commonality, common experience, common blood. And if you're if it's not common blood, at least it's it's based on uh, sh- shared experience, shared background, shared values. And so friends make up. A community. One of the ways I like to look at this is this this aspect of friendship. It's like uh, being in a family or being in a church. You have somebody who you know sings off key in the choir all the time, and you want to say you want to get rid of this person. But on the other hand, since this person is a, a loyal part of the church community and only doing her best or only doing his best, uh, we often have second thoughts about how strongly we should apply a standard of excellence, competitive excellence within a church community becomes a problem, just as in our family. You may have a a son or or daughter who is not a very nice person, not very smart, not very good looking, not very able. They may, you know, they may steal from the the collection plate, but they still, they are your child at any rate. And so you can't apply to them uh, uh, objective standards. In your mind, you can be objective, but you have to treat them different. So, so friendship implies a kind of refusal, a refusal to condemn, you know, and hence do, do for friends, we do try to do, to do unto them as we would have them do unto us because they are an alter ego. There's also, we have, uh, we don't have a good word for this, but, but the Greeks have a word which means comrade, like a comrade in arms. Now, these are these are people who are like our teammates. They go to war with us or their workmates or or um, they belong to the same political faction. We have a we have a shared objective and we together we pursue that objective. And since the whole point is that we achieve that objective, whether it's winning this winning the game or making a lot of money in our company uh, that's just for your sake, Stephen, winning a lot of money or or uh, whatever it is, victory is the object. And and therefore, we would we would fire our own brother as team captain if it meant we could win the championship. So so these two aspects of friendship, although they overlap in all cultures, because we make a we make comrades can turn into friends and friends can become comrades they're still important to keep a little bit distinct if we if we look this this contextually for dr fleming if we said something like sam francis what would that relationship be because i I see some overlaps of both friendship and comradeship that you're speaking of yeah we were we were comrades first we had um we worked together on various projects the southern partisan and then at chronicles and we had Sam had a powerful personality. Unlike me, Sam was not humble and self-effacing <laughs> and always always willing to yield a point. And so we we uh, we we uh, <laughs> had lots of uh, lots of uh, lively lots exchanges, of disagreements, lively exchanges of d- differing views. And it got to got sometimes to be more than that. <laughs> we also became friends. 
which is different, which meant I always had to forgive him when he when he was rude or when he was acting up or trying to uh, get off the reservation. And uh, I will say this about Sam. He had an irascible temperament, although my children always thought that was a mask to hide a, a sensitive, caring uh, uh, Sam Francis lurking beneath the surface. <laughs> I always assured them, no, the real Sam is much colder <laughs> and meaner than, than you've ever seen. But he was, uh, Sam was a person who actually took friendship seriously. He never betrayed a friend that I know of. He was always standing up for them. And uh, when our friend uh, Mel Bradford was uh, nominated for a, a government position for director of the NEH, and the neoconservatives stabbed him in the back and, and uh, 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 helped by George Will and, and uh, the people at the Heritage Foundation, at Fulner, and ultimately by Ronald Reagan, this meant uh, that you know Sam actually organized the defense of Bradford, and uh, really stood up for him. They were because you know he, on the one hand, he was an admirer, he was a teammate, and 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 Mel was to a some extent a team leader, but there was also this there was a, a warmth and fondness, and and Sam was very fond of of uh, Mel's wife Marie. And um, and so again, these things these things overlap. It is possible to be to to be to collaborate with somebody you dislike, and but to understand they're they're honorable enough, and you can you can do get the job done with them. And it's possible to have friends who are more or less useless, but uh, but often our our comrades and friends to some extent uh, overlap. Now. Let's talk a little bit about the duties. And to be a friend in the Homeric world, uh, what, what what are they? Well, we have – you could look at all these friends in the Iliad. you got the brothers, Agamemnon and Menelaus, who, who help each other. You have Odysseus and Diomedes. You have, of course, Glaucus, the alien, and Diomedes. Ajax and Teucer, who are uh, close relatives. And Achilles and Patroclus. You have, you have lots of other uh, Greek stories, uh, Theseus and Perithous. Friendship requires uh, some degree of equality. In other words, they, they, one of the friends may be older, wiser, more powerful, but you still have to live within the same universe. For the Greeks, you're not going to be friends with a beggar, usually, uh, unless the beggar may turn out to be a nobleman in disguise, and that's a question we raised in the in the Odyssey. Mm. But but and even to some extent, their friendship is possible with the gods. For example, Athena treats Diomedes and especially Odysseus sort of the way you treat a child or a, a, an inferior friend. And this is, a, this is rather important because in, in, in the Greek mind, there is never absent the notion that, that, that humans are related to the gods. That is, we have a divine spark in us. And this is quite different from the general view in the Middle East. It's different from the Jewish view. And so this, this is one of the reasons why the Greeks took so quickly to Christianity, because they didn't have this stumbling block. They could see, in the, from their perspective, to be told that uh, Jesus was the Son of God was not scandalous, or it was, it was a scandalous to the Jews. Now, what is friendship among Homeric heroes? What does it require? Politically, friends are supposed to stick up for each other. If, if there, for example, is a political meeting in the Council of Chiefs, they're supposed to praise each other's virtues. 
I mean, Nestor is the ideal sort of older friend. He's always telling, oh, you young man, you're so heroic. You're so you're wise beyond your years. Of course, that he reminds them that he remembers when there were better men than they are around. When Achilles and Agamemnon exchange insults near the beginning of the Iliad, they are treating each other as enemies do. That, they, they, that just from this point on, it's impossible for them to cooperate as friends. Because in a war, friends are supposed to come to each other's help. On the one hand, you see in a war, the idea is to win the battle. But they didn't, uh, in the Iliad, and I'm not saying that this is true of Bronze Age warfare, but in the Iliad, the fighting among the leaders is man-to-man combat, hand-to-hand combat among individual heroes with great prowess. You know, later Greek warfare is a question of a massed line, a hoplite line or a phalanx. Whereas in this, at this point in history, and, and there's some evidence this is true, maybe not universally true, but it's, it's hero against hero. It's more like a medieval tournament. So friends, fr- the, the, to some extent, everybody in the, in the battle on the Greek side, they're supposed to be friends, at least comrades. And so the object is to win the war. But then they have special duties to take special risks when a friend is in danger. So friends are supposed to help each other. If one falls, the other is supposed to rescue it or at least retrieve his body. The Greeks were very sensitive about this. You don't leave, you don't leave your dead on the ground. And after the battle of Arginusi, where the Athenian fleet was forced by a storm to leave uh, <clears throat> dying and dead uh, Greeks in the ocean, the, uh, the generals who made the decision, although it was the correct decision, were condemned to death. Because this, because from the Greek point of view, you simply don't leave your people under those circumstances. Now, a typical sort of uh, sequence of events in Homer, and I'm thinking about Book 13. In Book 13, the aging hero, he's probably in his 50s, uh, the king of Crete, Dominus, goes into battle. And so there's a series, he has to withdraw because his knees give way. They're arthritic. It's a very realistic scene. But inside, and there, but there are other books, book 14, book, there are all sorts of books like this. A attacks B, that is Greek A attacks Trojan B, who is then helped by uh, Trojan C and D, but uh, Greek E comes to assist A, who kills B, only to be killed by B's friends, a tussle that break out, each side tries to, tries to drag away the bodies, and calls for more general assistance from friends. Many of them are connected by ties of blood or by ties of friendship between their families. It's a, it's a beautiful, intricate ballet of slaughter. And the one theme that comes out over and over and over, is, but is rarely addressed by commentators, is that, that what, what we're seeing is the obligation of friends and kinsmen to help each other. And, and it, at, you know, in other words, you will risk your life to drag away the body and armor of your dead friend. Hmm. And similarly, at the end, at the end of the, the, uh, the Iliad, it's this horrifying scene where Achilles has killed, Hector has killed Patroclus. And, 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 and the, the result is that Achilles kills Hector and then drags his body mercilessly around the, 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 uh, in front of the, uh, the city of Troy. And the gods are aghast. This man's a monster. And so, but, you know, it's like they have, they said, well, we're going to draw straws to see who has to go and face him because Achilles is half, half a god. And in fact, 
even as a human being, he is so powerful that none of the gods wants to go up against him. So, but, and what's the, why is he doing this? Because his hatred, Hector has done nothing wrong. Hector did what was right. He's defending his city, his family, his children, and he, but he kills Achilles' friend. And Achilles has this single-minded, there's only one thing to which Achilles is loyal. He's not loyal to Agamemnon. He's not loyal to the army. He's not loyal to the Greek cause. He's only loyal to his friend. I believe, by the way, this is, uh, this is being condemned in, in Homer's moral universe. <clears throat> now, in a real sense, all the Greeks in the army before Troy are supposed to, at least all the leaders, are supposed to be friends or comrades. And when Achilles refuses to return to the battle, even though his friends, Odysseus and Ajax, have pleaded with him, Ajax turns against Ajax, his cousin, turns against him and he tells Odysseus, this man keeps his, the, the heart in his chest. He keeps it savage, nor does he attend to the friendship of his comrades. This is, this is the, uh, the, the best and worst thing <clears throat> about Achilles. That is, he is loyal to his friend, but, he, but at the expense of everything else. And I think this turns him into, uh, into an inhuman monster, which shows you that, you know, for example, what suppose, <clears throat> suppose you're one of the disciples and Judas is your best friend. Hmm. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to protect him? You're supposed to, well, Judas, we all make mistakes. <laughs> no, there are, there, are, there, are, there are higher claims. By the way, I always, here's a trick question I always like to ask my, my, uh, my evangelical Bible reading friends. <clears throat> which, of the, uh, which of the disciples is not a Galilean, but that is, but a Jew from Judea? Mm, I don't well, know. I don't know. One that. of the ways of forming this is where is where is the town of Kerioth? The town of Kerioth is in Judea, and Judas Iscariot is from Kerioth. He is the one disciple known not to be from the original friends and followers of Jesus up in Galilee around Nazareth. It's very, and so uh, this is this is actually could be worth a nice episode because, you know. Uh, the role of Galilee in the gospel narrative, especially in John, is very strong. And John is always accused of anti-Semitism, which is amusing because he's 100% Jewish. But, uh, you know, for, because the, the disciples gather, they're hiding out for fear of the Jews. No, it's for the word Judaios, Jew, also means person of Judea. They're afraid of the people of, of Jerusalem. It's not Jews per se. It's the Jewish hierarchy in Jerusalem that the that the real anger is focused on, because they're the ones who uh, arranged for the, uh, the the judicial murder of, of Jesus. So uh, it, there is there is a regional hostility between Galileans who are viewed as just slightly better than Samaritans and the people of Judea, that is around Jerusalem, and Judas. Judas to some, whose name, by the way, means the Jew. You know, Judas is uh, is to some extent reverting to being Judean and rebelling against uh, against this Galilean conspiracy against the Jewish hierarchy. Hmm. Well, I think you've you've covered a lot uh, in the realm of friendship, duty, comradeship, Doctor Fleming. Can we talk a bit more about the gray area? What if someone's not a friend, 
not an enemy, I would say, in modern parlance, we may say acquaintance, but an acquaintance still seems to betray some measure of, of, of a positive aspect. <clears throat> how, do, how would we look at it with, again, from the classical aspect, and then, and then how did Christianity transform it? Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, because, you know, from the, from the Homeric perspective, you're, one, you're, you're either, well, you're, you, there are three categories, friends, enemies, and people you don't know, who come, you know, in strange places. People you don't know in strange places can either, uh, if you need them, you, you ask for their friendship. If you don't need them, you, you may rob and pillage them and, and, and murder everybody in the place. In other words, there is no moral obligation. But there's a moral. There's a moral obligation. I'm not saying this is the right thing. I'm just saying that, that we can see by Odysseus' behavior and how people treat it. Now, there, is, there are rules about treating strangers. Yes, that's true. But Odysseus, you know, he comes and he takes what he wants and he does, he does things that we regard as morally deplorable. But, 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 but Dr. Fleming, wouldn't we say that the Greeks would see uh, someone who I don't know in a strange place as necessarily by default negative and that they have to prove themselves to be positive to us yeah oh, there's absolutely. a natural suspicion right yeah there's a there's a natural suspicion as there is by the way go to go to a greek church sometime and don't look greek you know <laughs> I, I, I i i'm familiar with the feeling yes uh, well, I, I, I look i look very not greek dr fleming some some 80 year old uh uh yaya some 80 year old grandmother will come up and say Kalimera! Like good, good, good morning, good afternoon. As as if as if it's a challenge, because if you can't say Kalimerasas, if you can't say good good morning to you, you know uh, Kiria, then then she knows you're not one of them, and uh, and she's established her point. You really don't belong here. <laughs> I've had that happen to me in the United States. I've had it happen to me in Athens. Mm. Not from the priests. The priests are always much too polite and suave for that. But but the old people, they don't they don't they don't want people who cross themselves from left to right or don't cross themselves at all. They don't they don't want them around. The the Greek I love the Greeks by the way. They're among my favorite uh, ethnic groups in Europe, and it's a country I love seeing and I, I I I respect them. And one of the things I respect is how unchanged the basic Greek character is after three thousand years. So the, the problem, uh, the, one of the uh, misunderstandings about Christianity is that somehow that everything's, all the old traditions have been wiped away. That you owe to the person next, you owe to your brother, what you owe to your neighbor, and, and best friend. What you owe to your neighbor and best friend, you also owe to people in Senegal that you've never met and who hate your religion and would kill you if, if, if you walked into their village. Now, this is, uh, we, 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 we could certainly talk about this in, in many future uh, podcasts. This is simply a total misreading, not only of the Gospels, but of the entire Christian uh, the, uh, tradition of moral theology. You, we have an obligation to be just to people we don't know, and just to people who are may even be persecuting us. All right. We have... We have an obligation to obey the law, even if the law says we're to be put to death for being Christian. Now, we're not, we don't have an obligation to, to, to uh, deny Christ. We don't have an obligation to inform of our friends. But we do have, for example, but, I, you know, there are lots of people who say, well, to protest abortion, I think I can go and steal a gun from a gun shop and then go and uh, put a gun to the head of the policeman who's uh, guarding uh, uh, an abortuary. I mean, no, this is all 
completely wrong. We're not absolved of these of these secular duties. We have an obligation to be just and law-abiding because we know that the rulers of this world were put here for the correction of wickedness. We're told that explicitly both by Paul but also by Christ himself who tells us that's what that Pilate wouldn't have authority if, if, it, if it hadn't been given to it. So, that, but, the, but there is nothing in Christianity that suggests that, A, we have the same obligation to people we don't know as to people who are our friends and neighbors. And more importantly, there is every indication that a lot of what's said in the Bible about forgi- forgiving our friends and neighbors has to do with the community of believers. You know, if, if, if Genghis Khan is riding into your village raping and pillaging, your obligation is to pick up a sword and try to, to prevent him and to try to kill as many of the Mongol warriors as you can. And no, you're not killing them with love in your heart. You're killing them because of the, you, you've got to prevent them from doing evil. To fail to resist evil is to collaborate with evil. And there is, there's, there's no question on that. So we, have, we, do have these, we do have categories. There's friend. There's enemy. The people in between, we have to be scrupulous about being just and fair to, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also when Christians act badly. Like, for example, you know, you go to a a student and you go to a meeting and they start making fun of you as a Christian. You start you start smarting off and showing what a jerk you are. Well, then everybody says, see, they really are the bigots I've always said they are. (laughs) In other words, you're bringing shame and scandal on the faith. And, and again, we're in, Paul talks in parallel ways, he talks about this, where <clears throat> should you, can you eat meat offered to idols? Well, really, it doesn't make any difference, because you know, we don't believe that, that, that the idols are real. This is nothing. On the other hand, what about, what about weak, dumb people who are Christian but still feel that there's something wrong in this? Well, don't scandalize them. By scandalizing, don't put a stumbling block on their road to, to greater faith, because to scandalize is to trip over or cause somebody to trip over a stumbling block. So we have an obligation not to bring shame and contempt on, on, on the Christian faith. So we, should, we have to act justly to strangers. And we, and we also have to act in such a way as so that they won't walk away. Yeah, just another one of those stupid Christians, another one of those evil, bigoted Catholics. Well, uh, there, uh, there's obviously more we could talk about, Dr. Fleming, but I, th- I think it's probably a good time for us to, to bring the episode to a close. Is there, is, are, is there any one or two things that you'd, make, you'd like to make sure we cover before finishing today's episode? No, I think um, I think I think we've covered what we needed to cover. I'll, I will just say that again. <clears throat> Homer gives you a crude view of the, the these powerful duties in life and even after death, because once somebody's dead, you still have to. Uh, if he's a friend, you have to rescue his body, rescue his armor, <clears throat> and if it's a relative, you have obligation to carry out certain funeral duties, as we saw. Uh, in talking about uh, Sophocles' Antigone, uh, it's it's a it's it's a positive necessity. Even our f- friendship does not end in death, it's especially that aspect of friendship which is which is kinship. So these are an anticipation of uh, the flowering of these ideas first in Greek tragedy, then in Greek philosophy, and then ultimately in 
in the Christian faith. And I, I, I think I've decided that I will try never to use the word Christian religion again. Uh, other people have religion. We, we have a faith in the truth. Hmm. I think that's an excellent place to end. Thanks, as always, for your time, right. Dr. Fleming. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.